0: right, good evening, good evening, good evening. Uh, It's Wednesday the 17th and we are here uh, with our partners of Kane County Law Enforcement at the State's Attorney's Office. Um, So I'm going to give uh, introductions first. Um, Is it Sergeant? No, Investigator. Investigator uh, Guevara of APD is here with us. Good evening to you, sir. State's Attorney uh, Jamie Moster is here. And uh, Assistant Kane County State's Attorney Ms. Moonshi, good evening. Good evening. And Dr. Jennifer Adams, MD of the Elgin Mental Health Center. Hi. How y'all doing? Good. How are you? Everybody's looking good. We're feeling good (laughs) tonight. Um, So we'll be talking about um, involuntary admission and involuntary administration of court-ordered medications. Uh, And this discussion tonight um, will be a free-flowing discussion for the benefit of the listeners for them to learn and also to dispel um, things that we don't know about or are commonly, commonly, excuse me, misassociated with our topics this evening. Okay, so uh, my name is Curtis and you guys are watching Good Morning Aurora. This is our monthly discussion. We have uh, one every month, so appreciate being here. Uh, so we'll start off with you, uh, State's Attorney Master. Good evening to you. We'll be learning about the involuntary admission and administration court order Medications, both of these are separate, representing by, represented by, excuse me, Assistant State's Attorney Munshi and Dr. Adams. Um, how do these both fit into the mission of the State's Attorney's Office and what is their purpose?
1: So what people do not know is that we actually are statutorily charged with the duty to prosecute these petitions. And so when I say prosecute, everybody seems to think that's like a criminal prosecution. Prosecute means I'm litigating them. So when a petition is filed, whether it's held by law enforcement, just an individual family member, a doctor, we are the ones who are charged to go in to be the lawyers on behalf of the petitioner to try to get a person involuntarily admitted or to be involuntarily given medication. So this is one of the legal duties that we have to do. The best part of the reason why we're describing all or discussing all of this now is May's Mental Health Awareness Month and a thing that people do not understand is this process. Police get called, hospitals get called, we get called all the time, and they're going to say, oh, you know, my kid is just acting weird, I need them committed. And that's not the process, and so this is important because I want people to understand what it actually means for this, how we all can help in that process, and just to give people a little more information on what to do in case they have a family member or a friend who's experiencing some mental health issues.
0: And Kane County has a separate mental health court as well.
1: Correct, So, and this is important. We have discussed before our specialty courts where we have drug rehabilitative court, mental health court, which is the treatment alternative court, veterans court, and soon to be DUI rehabilitative court. We'll talk about that on another day. But these are for people who are arrested in the system and we have determined that they are both high-risk and high-need, and as a result of all of that, <laughs> I apologize. <some> Talk, <laughs> Talk. I good. It's all good. I like people to know we're real. We want to defend. We want to So um, that's different. This portion of it is something that is held both in Elgin and Aurora with judges. We go into the Elgin and Aurora hospitals to be able to do these hearings, and then we have witnesses like the doctor over here. And so while we call it mental health court, I want to make sure people understand that there's a difference between this mental health call where we're doing these types of petitions versus when somebody's arrested and we put them in our special programming.
0: Aha. Okay. Okay. Um, good evening, uh, Ms. Ms. Munchie. Tell us about your work as assistant state's attorney regarding the um, Involuntary Admissions,
2: please. Good evening. Uh, Thank you so much for having us here. And so we are charged with, as she said, representing the people of the state of Illinois in the mental health proceedings. So we present the evidence and we make sure that that, that there is enough support for civil involuntary admission and MEDS petition. We are also charged with making sure the petition is properly drafted. Keep in mind that we're talking about people's serious rights here. You know, you can miss a box or you can like the crucial part of they need immediate hospitalization. We have to make sure those boxes are filled out because what's the purpose of doing this? If you don't fill it up properly, then you're violating their rights and we don't proceed. The key is to get them help. And we also make sure that the orders that are entered are drafted properly. And just like in criminal proceedings, we must serve justice, truth and justice first, and protect the rights of all the people, including the person who's subject
3: to involuntary admission. Okay, and we'll talk, uh, we will talk later about that specifically, um,
0: and those people who do advocate for the individual. Um, I I do want to mention and kind of highlight the civil process though, Mm -hmm. as we talked about before the, camera came on most people have the the um the thought that dealing with your state's attorney one is in a uh, criminal proceeding um so that's a good thing to dispel kind of right there yes
2: this is a civil involuntary admission so this is part of the civil uh section so we're not this is not criminal charges we're not taking them and charging them we're basically trying to get them help so that they could then go enjoy their life, be, move away from the, you know, the need that they have and be stable and enjoy their life. So that's the key here. And uh, so, you know, I could talk to you about some of the misconceptions that are out there. Uh,
0: you know, you know what like. we're, we're going to come to okay. that. We're going to, ooh, this is a good one.
2: Yeah, I, I want to yeah. tell you about the oh, misconceptions.
0: We're, yes. um, we're, 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 we'll get there. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. Um, I do want to uh, uh, speak to investigator, Guevara, real quick. Um, in in your work with the aurora police department um and not just during the month of May for mental health awareness month but even you know all of the time in your work um how
3: have you interacted or your staff or team interacted with involuntary admissions well it's something that we're doing every day yeah. um it's you know this is something that happens every year and there it's it's very much officers are um, out there Getting calls uh, from our dispatch center where people are in crisis and need help, and um, if the officers uh, see that they meet the criteria to complete a petition for involuntary admission, they complete that paperwork and you know work their way to getting that individual in crisis to the hospital and getting them with uh, medical staff like a doctor, nurse, psychiatrist, etc.
0: Okay, without having
3: uh, all of the black
0: and white on hand with you at the moment, about how many calls? are
3: received perhaps per month? So per month, it's difficult to say statistics-wise because when we get a call for a mental health crisis, sometimes they get called in as a disturbance, gets called in as a assistance needed. There's ways that calls get labeled that in the end, not necessarily knowing maybe what the disposition is until we're done with it. Uh, But I can tell you that last year in 2022, we had 1,096 police reports generally for petitions uh, for involuntary admission.
0: Okay, so it could be as you as you mentioned, it could be a disturbance, then
3: resolving or underlying being a mental health. Yes, issue. yeah. Sometimes it's not just as clear cut. When it comes in through nine one one, they're doing their best to kind of gather that information for the officer when they're getting dispatched. But it's not until maybe the officer gets there that that they recognize that it's a mental health crisis. Um, maybe it was because somebody was suicidal or they were homicidal. And again, when they're gathering that information, that's when they make the determination on whether or not they need to be hospitalized.
0: Okay, interesting. The time is 6.09 p.m. Uh, And now, Dr. Adams, good evening. Good evening. All right. Um, So before we speak about um, involuntary administration of court-ordered medications, IACOM, I, put
3: here.
0: I came up with that so if anybody uses that I would like my flowers please um, what's your background how long have you been with the Elgin Mental Health Center
4: Um, I am a psychiatrist, um, which means I am a medical doctor. Um, I went to medical school at University of Illinois Chicago um, and completed a residency in psychiatry. So um, psychiatric physicians have spent generally four plus years in residency where they are practicing psychiatry um, in order to be trained to practice independently. Um, and I also completed my residency at University of Illinois, Chicago, in order to uh, be a practicing psychiatrist. Um, I have uh, worked in forensic psychiatry um, through Cook County prior to working at Elgin. Um, and then I joined Elgin in October of 2022. So I've been there a little over six months now.
0: Okay, awesome. And you light up when you speak about it. So that's, uh, that's very in, in, uh, indicative. much you love what you do Uh, now let's talk about some of the common misconceptions um, about this evening's discussion and anyone can take anything we just talked about the civil process as opposed to criminal Um, we also talked about from APD's perspective or police perspective um, how calls are labeled and then what the disposition may actually be what else what are some other misconceptions that we have in this field
2: so basically, one is the involuntary admission can be ordered without any evidence or due process, which is not true. You know, there is going to be a hearing. The respondent has a right to counsel. They have a right to independent examination. So there is, it's a big, they, they will be heard. They have a right to be heard. And so that's one of the misconceptions that, hey, I could just do paperwork, they'll be locked away. It, it, right. That's not true. The second misconception is that only mental health professionals can initiate involuntary admissions which is not true anybody over the age of 18 if you're familiar with the mental person's mental illness and you're seeing the deterioration you're seeing that they are not taking care of their basic needs they're not eating you know you can as a family member friend concerned citizen you can go to the emergency room, have a petition, they will help you draft it, they'll have petitions at the emergency room. And they will help you with that and you, anybody can fill that out. That doesn't mean that Dr. Adams does come in when it comes to certifying and cert, you know, making sure that what they're saying meets the criteria, but really anybody can initiate that. So I have about four misconceptions and then people can talk about others. Oh, there are so many. Let me tell you. Came prepared, I yes, I did, I did. That's how we roll in this office. Yes, we indeed. are prepared. <laughs> so and then the other one is involuntary admission is a punishment for a person's behavior. It is not you know, when your family or anyone trying to get you help, that's not punishment, it's intervention. It's to give them support, to help, to get them treatment. And as I said earlier, so that they can go back to their lives and you're not focusing and your mental illness is not your priority, you could live life. So that's right. what we are there to help with that and not just, you know, uh, right. punish you. And then finally, there's one the involuntary admission is permanent and indefinite. Maybe during the you know olden days it was, but like Mary Tyler. Mary Todd Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln. Look at it, Ron name. Mary yes. Todd Lincoln's <laughs> involuntary
0: commitment. That was that old.
2: So, anywho, uh, he, now there's a 90 days, so there's a limit to it. Yeah. So, these are the few misconceptions I have, but I'm sure. The panel has some more. I think the <laughs> biggest one that I
1: have is that anyone with a mental health issue or a diagnosis can be committed. And that is not even true. So we get a lot of calls about that where somebody will say, Well, my adult son has bipolar. I need him committed. Well, there's more factors to that. Is the person, as the investigator said, suicidal? Is the person homicidal? Is whatever condition that they have causing them so that they cannot take care of themselves and essentially are unable, they're not eating, you know, they're not taking their medication, there's other things like that. And so that's the the biggest thing that I think that we see is so many people call up and they're like, my kid, my family member has this issue, I need them to be forced to go to the hospital. And now while we hope that people can go to the hospital because a lot of times it's untreated or maybe their medication is off or they need some additional assistance, it may not rise to the level of this because again, as Samin was saying, It's huge to take away somebody's liberty, so to put them into a hospital, to force them to have medication. They have a right to decide what happens. It only once it gets to that extreme level that we can come in and petition to do this.
0: So it is possible that the answer can be strictly a no for involuntary commitment. A person could be uh, we have a term, the decompression term, which i decompressing, excuse me, that I want to talk about more, but it is possible that a person could, you know, want to go through this procedure and simply have a family member who was unfortunately, um, you know, deteriorating, but not meeting the criteria, mm-hmm. key word being criteria, Correct. to be um, involuntary, involuntarily admitted.
4: And that's why there's multiple steps. Um, Where anybody can complete a petition. It does require the the next step requires an evaluation um, where a certificate would need to be completed. Um, And that's where the physicians come in. Mm -hmm. Generally, the first certificate is filled out by an emergency room physician who is seeing someone assessing them that has been brought in. Um, And they will then determine whether those primary criteria are met, um, and we take it very seriously. Um, we, we need to see clear evidence that someone is a risk of harm to themselves, a risk of harm to others, or they're clearly unable to care for themselves because of their mental state, um, and that they could be, that that could also be a risk of harm to themselves due to their inability to care for themselves. Um, if those criteria are not met, then an involuntary admission is not something that would be able to proceed forward. Um, And that that certificate is the physician's assessment saying that, yes, we do feel that these criteria are met. Um, And then subsequent to that, there's a second certificate that needs to be filled out by another physician. And at that point, it does need to be a mental health professional. So a psychiatrist would be the person assessing it. So the first certificate might be an emergency room physician, but the second would have to be a psychiatrist.
0: Now, at any stage during this process, would law enforcement be part of it, still be part of it? Is there
3: any interaction at, at, in any of the... The prep that we're talking about now. So in terms of what they're doing in the hospital, generally once we get somebody to the hospital, it, it really falls on the emergency room that's or the, okay. the physician that's seeing them to, to handle that portion. Um, to kind of talk a little bit more back what uh, Jamie was talking about earlier is that the best way that we try to explain things to family is that I'm not a doctor. Right. I'm not a psychiatrist. Me I have very... Either. I don't have <laughs> <that> training, <laughs> right? it's just the training, right? And the process for um, completing a petition, it's, it's a legal decision-making process. It's sure. not a, a clinical process. So somebody who may be exhibiting uh, signs of mental illness, although maybe a doctor or psychiatrist may say that person is uh, somebody that maybe needs some additional support, it doesn't always meet the legal criteria for us to be able to force them to go. And Got that's it. how I always try to explain that to family members because I can understand that a lot of times it's very frustrating that you want somebody to get help, but how do we get them there? And sometimes law enforcement can't assist with that based on that criteria that we're looking for. So that in itself is one of the misconceptions or surely could be that we're talking about. Yes.
4: I'd like to also add to kind of com- compound on top of that. If someone does not meet criteria for an involuntary admission, but does seem that they would benefit from admission, we have options to do voluntary admissions um, and the the threshold there is much lower. So, um, and regardless of whether somebody meets criteria for an involuntary admission or not, I prefer for them to come into the hospital voluntarily. Any physician would prefer for the patient to come in voluntarily. So we do our best to counsel the patient on what, the benefit is for them in coming into the hospital um so that they are making the decision voluntarily as opposed to us taking away their rights and and doing an involuntary admission
0: um so in in the vein of misconceptions and then I'm going to we'll end and move on with this part but and I I don't mean this to be um, funny at all but is perhaps part of the misconception that the, that the, that the word involuntary
3: Is in all of this and is it in there for legal reasons purely and cannot
0: be changed with which we could possibly end you know that's a serious question
1: so the involuntary nature of it means that legally and both then clinically we believe that they should be what people have to understand is that especially undiagnosed mental health or misdiagnosed or bad medication or whatever it is causes people not to think logically in the way that we would think. And oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen this in your career, the family member is like, that is not my husband. That is not my sister. That is not that person. Hear that on an almost Mm -hmm. daily basis. Right. And that's because something needs to be adjusted. And that's why we have the legal ability to go in and do this on an involuntary basis. Because at that point, as the investigator said, it's about decision-making too. So they're so far gone, both legally and mostly clinically, by the way, that they're not making the best decisions for themselves. Then we come and we make those decisions.
0: Uh, the time is eight. Excuse me, six twenty. Man.
1: I was oh, going to no, say that time flew. Wild. Right. I'm, I'm in morning mode still.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Next question. Um, how does one balance? Um, how does one balance public? and public health and safety with individual civil rights. Also, what rights does a person have who may be facing the potential for involuntary admission? We, we kind of talked, you know, we, we got the 30,000 foot view right. of the rights, but let's dig in a little bit more.
2: So I have, the, again, my list, I have my list of rights of admittees. This is what they are actually provided w- with the petition. Yes. And one of them is, Once they're brought to the emergency room, they have a right to be examined within 24 hours. And if they're not examined within 24 hours, they must be released. Also, the respondent, the patient, does not have to talk to the examiner. They have a right to remain silent. Of course, we want them to talk because the key is to get them help. But they have a right. They don't have to talk to them. And then, as I flip it over, um, also, when they do the petition and they do the certificate, they have a right to get a copy of it. So they get a copy, and as she stated earlier, they have a right to be to sign uh, admit themselves involuntarily any time during this process started, they have a right to do that. They also have a right to an independent examination, so they could go get their own doctor to examine. They have a right to do that. They have a right to a jury trial for involuntary admissions, not for involuntary meds. So they have a right to a jury trial. They also have a right to an attorney. In King County, we have some fine attorneys in the public defender's office. They work really hard and they defend their clients very well. For free. For free. Sometimes, you know, we. Where it's adversarial and sometimes they are a little special, but yes, they, they worked. Well, they're doing their job,
0: right? Yeah, they, they're doing
2: their job. I mean, exactly. They work. They, yeah. they work really hard, and they really, really are fine public defenders. I'm not. I mean, just they really are, and they will be very well represented. <laughs> you're getting me in trouble now. And they have a right to be present at the hearing, right. and and of course, unfortunately, or... Unfortunately, they will lose their void card and they will not be entitled to get a void card if they get involuntarily. admitted. But going to your
1: first question. What is the intersection of this? Like, why should we care so much that we involuntarily do this? Which is taking away their liberty at that point. They can't leave. Um, To me, it prevents worse things from happening. And so when you have something like this where you see all the signs and you not only ask for our legal opinion but we make sure that there's doctors involved in all of this we're doing everything right and following the steps Um, one of the worst cases that i've ever come upon was really early in my term and it was a woman whose adult son had had a head traumatic head injury started to smoke a lot of cannabis which caused his personality to change even more he actually physically battered her and he was charged with a misdemeanor here in this office She came to our office and she's like, please help, please help. She's like, i have taken him to the doctor. The doctor says his meds are fine. It just kept helping and she knew and she knew. So we had filed to have a diagnostic center evaluation done of him. But then in the meantime, he had such a break that he actually had a tool and attempted to kill her. She went into the hospital, she lived, she survived. But had there been some sort of intervention in between, it might've prevented what happened. Now, again, she had gone to doctors. She had gone to hospitals. He'd been released, so he may not have been that far, but to me, that's what does it. And she said that to me. She kept saying, it's not my son, it's not him. She showed me pictures of him before his traumatic brain injury, and then what he looked like. It was awful for her, and I will never forget that. And now he's in a hospital, and he's getting help, and he's getting closer to where he was before, but
0: he's stable. Um what is the um what is the name of the form with which the process can be started?
2: Involuntary admission petition okay. for involuntary petition,
0: petition. for involuntary mm-hmm. admission. Um now that is available if one is
3: at a hospital online you can You can google it. Oh it yeah. is Oh yeah. Online. Yeah. Really? If
4: yes. You google Illinois petition for involuntary admission it pops up yeah um mm-hmm. and that's often how I actually download it myself. <laughs> yes. So even even oh, being at a hospital. Human
3: Services, I believe it's the one that published it. Yes. IDHS. And you can okay.
4: f-
2: type it right into yep. it so it's very easily. It's, it's in a very easy people. format. Yeah. Very easy format.
0: Um, now let's talk about um, patient acquiescence and refusal. Um, what actions do yourself or staff take in both situations when dealing with the patient?
4: Um, So each patient is going to be very different um, from the time they come in to the time they leave. Um, We might see a lot of different parts of the mental illness as well as parts of the patient. Oftentimes, um, we will see patients that are refusing any care. They're refusing to speak. They're refusing to give any history, any information. Um, or they'll they'll speak to us, but they're refusing any type of intervention, despite being, you know, informed. Hey, this is what we're seeing. Um, any hospital is going to have a, a process by which the treatment team is meeting with the patient on a regular basis. Um, and that is to build up rapport, to, to kind of let the patient get to know the treatment team as well as for the treatment team to get to know the patient. Um, and learn, you know, what are the things that are, you know, in the case of refusals, what is what is the hurdle? You know, why is somebody refusing? What is the concern? Um, for some people, it is, solely that the mental illness itself is causing them to have such illogical thought um, or uh, in the cases of some people with with paranoia or or thoughts of being persecuted, that they're not able to trust the treatment team, they don't trust the medications, and they're not able to make a rational decision because of the illness. And it's important to note that that's the illness, that's not the person. Um, And that's kind of where we we start to look at things and understand why is this person refusing? Um, In other cases, sometimes it's refusing because I don't want to have a diagnosis. We don't want the stigma of of having a mental illness. Um, And so in those cases, it's a lot of education. It's talking to them, making sure that they understand that just because you have a diagnosis of mental illness doesn't mean your life necessarily has to change. I know many people that live fulfilling lives with diagnosis including you know severe mental illness including schizophrenia bipolar and they're fully functional and successful in their day-to-day lives um, outside of the hospital And so kind of really trying to understand what's happening when somebody's refusing care Um, when they are agreeing to care we also have to take a step back and understand why they're agreeing to care Um, we want to make sure that somebody understands what they're agreeing to anytime any physician makes any clinical decision we're assessing whether or not a person has the ability to make that decision Mm -hmm. Um, we call it we call it assessing capacity. Do they have the capacity to make a decision about their medical care? Um, in the cases of acquiescing to treatment, um, it's kind of a lower threshold. We we really want them to get the treatment that they need. So if they are willing, we're going to make sure they have a basic understanding of the risks and benefits. If they're unwilling, that's where you know we really have to understand then where that's coming from and how can we you know get them on the on the track to treat them because our goal is always to get them then out of the hospital. We want everybody in the hospital to get out and get back to their lives.
0: Uh, the time is uh six twenty nine p m made that that was the the right time uh <laughs> um, this time so um now in that same um well they're they're there for ninety days as the maximum the, well not
2: necessarily, not necessarily. Okay. <laughs> yeah <Okay. laughs> yeah okay. you could file another petition and okay. you have another hearing and there'll be another ninety days
0: ah okay.
2: So there's a lot of different
4: parts of, of being admitted where, yes, you the initial involuntary admission, at any point after that, somebody can say, you know what, actually, you know, maybe they started treatment and they say, actually, I did need to be here. They can sign in involuntarily, um, like I was already mentioned, at any point. Um, and when somebody signs in involuntarily, um, they also have, at that point, the right to request a discharge. Um, In the state of Illinois, we call it a five day. A a, a lot of people know the term a five day. I want to sign a five day um, Which is basically them requesting to be discharged at that point um, You know, we can we work with the patient if they're appropriate to be discharged in five days, then they're able to leave the hospital Um, if they're not appropriate to be discharged in five days and the patient agrees, you know, I'm not ready to leave, they can rescind that and stay in the hospital still as a voluntary patient. If they still insist and they're still not appropriate to leave and they meet, again, those criteria for involuntary commitment, we go back to that involuntary admission process and it kind of starts over, we'd have to do another hearing, that kind of thing. Um, If we get to that 90 days and we're still feeling like this person is not where we, where we need them to be, and they're still a risk to themselves, to others, or unable to care for themselves, yes, it's a, it's a reassessment and then a resubmission of an involuntary admission um, packet. It's something that, again, we're kind of continuously, every single day, reassessing our patients. Um, if somebody is in the hospital involuntarily, and they improve, and, you know, we haven't had a hearing yet, we can, we can say, you know what, we no longer need this person to be involuntarily admitted. They're doing so much better. Usually by that point, they've also said, yeah, I'll fill in a, a voluntary application when they're doing better. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's definitely, there's a lot of back and forth that can happen. Um, but our goal is also, again, to get them out. Um, I really, really try to never hit that 90 days. And I think every, every psychiatrist I know really tries not to hit that 90 days um because that that's sort of that point where again we're restricting somebody's rights and we're um, removing them from their life
1: but it's getting them the stability exactly to be involuntarily committed sometimes that comes with the acquiescence to take medication or we have to go the next step which is the involuntary administration of the medication right because again that's a block sometimes people refuse because we have had people who are in there who don't trust the government they have a complete and utter mistrust, they think that we're giving them pills that have homing devices, things like that. They don't have homing devices. I want to make that clear to the public. But as a result of that, though, once they get that medication, they become stabilized. And when they're stabilized, they're no longer homicidal, suicidal, and they can care for themselves. And that's when the release happens.
0: Uh, The time is 6.33 p.m. So this next question um, is going to be um, more for investigator Vara, State's Attorney Master, uh, Assistant State's Attorney Munchi. Um because we know, Dr. Adams, we know that you're uh, quite qualified. So what... Wait, uh, are you asking help?
2: Oh, no, no. Are <laughs> you no, no, trying to qualify us? That's
0: quite a uh, did scratch it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, your background, you are, you are a doctor. Yes. Um, you guys are not doctors. Very gently, very gently. Um, So what special um, training have yourselves or the staff undergone to take part in this, be part of be a part of this and do this work specifically? Investigator
3: Guevara, we'll start with you
0: and then go.
3: Yeah, so uh, there's something called CIT Crisis Intervention Team. Officers have the opportunity to take this 40-hour course, which is offered by I-Letsby, uh, the Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standing Board. Standard Board, that's a long Oh, you did out. it, though. You I- did it. I-Let's-B. <laughs> is easier to say. Um, but for those of you that know, don't know. Uh, but, yeah, so that, that, that course is offered through the state. It's very specific training uh, for mental health. And what's really nice is that they actually bring in actors and, and actually do role-playing scenarios for officers to, to de-escalate. Um, and that's one of the classes that I was able to take. I also went through a, a 40 hour course through the state for as a crisis negotiator um, to, to deal with very severe situations where maybe somebody's barricaded in their home. Um, and overall, law enforcement in general, we actually do very specific training at, at Aurora Police Department. Every officer that is new that before they hit the street, they are actually learning about the petition process, how to complete a petition, and what is the criteria that they need to be looking for. Uh, because like everybody here has said, We take it very seriously when we are saying, hey, you need to leave your home or wherever you are in a public place and we need you to go to the hospital against your will. And we treat it very similar, it's almost uh, in comparison to an arrest. You're taking somebody's rights away. They're not allowed to go anywhere. You're saying you gotta go somewhere. Um, So we make sure that every officer goes through that training so that they are aware of uh, that civil proceeding. Because that's something that's very different for us. We're always criminal, criminal, criminal. That's what we're dealing with is that part of the law And this scenario, we're doing with that civil part. So it's important that everybody is aware of it. Uh, On the site team, um, how many, what's the disposition between officers and people who are not officers? Other staff, counselors, or is that that social workers? Yeah, so our unit, the crisis intervention unit, it changed the name. It used to be site. It's now CIU. (laughs) Uh, We changed it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But it used to be called site. So, the, with the difference between myself and maybe somebody who is CIT certified is really that we have a mental health professional with us. So okay. uh, we have a social worker that's in our unit that works directly with us. She's in the car with me. Her name's Bridget Damson. Shout out to her All if right. she's watching. She's fantastic. She's uh, the primary person who rides with me, and she's everywhere with us. And okay. she's It's more of having an immediate access to somebody who's very familiar with the resources in the community and also... background because we talked about kind of the clinical and the uh, the law and it's nice to have that perspective because it's very different on what she's looking at and what she's seeing based on her training.
1: So mine is a lot different than what Samim's will be because Samim is the person actually doing hearings and so she's the one who goes to court. Unfortunately as the state's attorney I have become more of a bureaucrat so I am in my office attending a significant amount of meetings. But with that being said, um, I want to talk about why we have Samim uh, while we have her supervisor, Kim Klein, who also better be watching this right now. I think she is in <laughs> so, the chat. Yeah, Ooh, yeah Kim
0: Crum-Klein. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, and Kim supervises now our specialty court oh. unit, which has a total of five people in it. So it's not only the mental health call, but this is also the specialty courts, our violations of probation. Um, The reason why that unit is here is because when I took office, one of the things that I was told by both Amita and Aurora and the Elgin Mental Health Center is that they need better than what we've been providing to them. And it wasn't that my attorneys who were handling this weren't good enough, smart enough, didn't know what was going on, but they were doing a bazillion other things too. So at that time, our civil division was handling this. Our civil division on top of their normal job was also doing this abuse and neglect cases. And they were doing everything with the COVID and everything associated with that. So what I did is I petitioned the county board and I told the county board how important this was. But prior to that, I had gone to the Elgin Mental Health Center and I had a significant amount of doctors telling me how bad it had been and what they needed for support. And then I went to Amita and the same thing was told to me. And so that's why I went to the county board and I petitioned to have two attorneys who were would specialize in just the mental health call. We got them office space in the Elgin Mental Health Center and in the Aurora Amita so that they were there, boots on the ground. So what I can tell you is thanks to the county board, we have these specialized attorneys here and we're able to create this unit because we saw a need. We wanted to partner better with them than what we did and we provided the attorneys. So what I do is I ask for money so that I can have the appropriate people. That is my training yeah. and an experience. Awesome.
0: Um,
2: Cindy. Cindy, excuse me. And uh, So I have been an attorney for 22 years. I was a DuPage County State's attorney before where I did the mental health call mm-hmm. and I did the training for police officers there and I did the training for all the hospitals there and how to do the petition. So I had that experience and then you know before we get to that of course there's undergrad law school bar exam and then having the pleasure to work for a state's attorney that's the only way i could do this job because mm-hmm. this is really for the state's attorney only so so once i get there we have an amazing continuing legal education mm-hmm. program in this office i have to say every day we get some new case law that's come down we have great attorneys here and and so with that we are Every new case, we are taught, we have that info. And, uh, and uh, also with specialty courts, you know, again, thanks to county board, mm-hmm. uh, state's attorney here, and our judge who handles specialty court, we go to trainings. We're going to a nationwide training and statewide training later this year, and that's all about problem solving. Mm-hmm. How do we find solutions? How do we solve problems? How do we better serve the people? And that's basically what we do. So, and believe me, we get a lot of training all the time, which is great. Mm-hmm. And
0: so. That's why you bring notes, right? So <laughs> I make sure I have my notes,
2: yes.
0: Um, Allison Meinhold-Sent, thank you very much for your stars. Luis Wu, good evening. And uh, Kim crum says, yes, she's here. And Deanna Nicole says, Bridget is the best. So shout, out to, shout out to Bridget. Mm-hmm. Um, the time is 6.40. Okay, Um, explain assisted outpatient. What is that?
4: Um, So assisted outpatient treatment is um, kind of a level in between uh, the hospital and going back into the hospital. Um, This is where somebody um, has a court order for them to have their medications as an outpatient. Um, and they are, you know, by court order required to take their medications and they can be brought back to the hospital um, under that court order if they are not taking those medications. Um, and it can be very helpful for those patients that struggle with taking their medications. Um, when. There are patients that struggle with medications. We do try to make sure we put them on medications that are as easy as possible. Um, Some of our medications come in the form of a monthly shot that is so much easier than having to take a pill every day. Um, And so those medications might be helpful for for patients that struggle with taking a pill every day. Um, But if they miss that appointment to get their monthly shot or if their family comes in and they're like, this. Bottle of pills hasn't been, you know, none are missing. um, Then that assisted outpatient treatment is a legal document. It's a legal order that they can then be, you know, call in for, you know, a wellness check, bring to the hospital, and either get the medication um, there in the hospital. Sometimes just getting it in the emergency room or in an outpatient clinic is enough. um, Or sometimes it does go to the level of then they need to be hospitalized.
0: Um. And uh, with the time that we have for me, we've got a good amount of time actually up. Please explain autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance uh, in regards to the work that you do. These terms, wanna want to dig into these terms and, and talk more about those.
4: So these are what we kind of consider sort of the, the core of medical ethics. Um, and um, with respect to physicians, all of our ethics training we hear these these terms so uh, beneficence non malfeasance uh, autonomy and then the fourth one is justice um well, those, I know that one. yeah <laughs> yeah from a medical perspective when we when we will start with justice from a medical's perspective um, justice in, in our world is kind of weighing that risk and benefit when we're talking about a medication you know are there side effects? What is the risk of those side effects compared to the benefit of the treatment with the medication? Um, and so that's a, a big part of weighing what we need um, on an overarching scale. It's also you know doing exactly what um, you know, our state's attorney did in looking at what's the system. How do we how do we make the system so that it is available to treat everybody appropriately medically? Um, As far as uh, beneficence and and non-malfeasance, these are kind of opposite sides of the same coin. You know, beneficence is that, you know, we're supposed to be doing good for others, Um, that our job as doctors is to be caring for others. Um, And then non-malfeasance is what everybody's heard, that do no harm. Um, You don't want to be doing harm to others um and then autonomy is basically what we've been talking about this whole time that is a person's right to make their own decisions um and this incorporates not just you know their ability to make their own decisions but making sure they're of a sound mind to do so um and so when we're talking about taking away somebody's rights their illness has sort of removed their autonomy um because they're, they're no longer of a sound mind to be able to make that decision. Um, so the illness is what has actually removed the autonomy. And when we're taking away that right, our goal is to get them back to that place where they can make decisions with autonomy.
0: Um, there have been, and uh, I know that the State's Attorney's Office has done a lot of work in regards to victims of domestic violence. Um, up to and including stalking, harassment, and all those kind of things. Um, for that person who may be a negative influence in somebody's life and wanna be vindictive, so they're gonna to try to write a petition about Sheila, because I don't like her anymore, or the people who try to do you know, bad actors with this. Um, it seems like there's checks and balances in place to prevent that, is that the case?
1: Very much so, except if it's my husband. <laughs> uh, he better be watching this right. right now so um there are very a lot of checks and balances and also if somebody does that and they're swearing to a petition that's perjury we're going to come after them as a result of all of that so there are a ton of check and balances not only because they draft a the petition we're going to review it to see if it's legally sufficient but then frankly this certificate process where you have one person do a certificate then a doctor do a certificate we're not holding people who shouldn't be helped and right. so i don't want anybody to be worried about that with the exception of my husband but <laughs> it's it's really designed to
4: be this way to actually help people and not allow people to harm them um, And when we do those evaluations for certificates we do them with just the patient so if there is any concern for that we make sure that those evaluations are separate from anyone else, including um, the petitioner. So
0: patient, client, privilege is upheld.
4: It is upheld, exactly. So even though somebody's writing a petition, it does not give them the right to know the medical condition of the patient themselves. The patient is the only person that can give permission for that person to know their medical. In fact, we can't even confirm or deny whether or not they are admitted without their permission. Um, And Investigator
1: Guevara, actually, if you want to talk about the fact that you've petitioned and you don't even get to have any of that
3: info. That's very correct. Yeah. If we, in the event that um, we send somebody to the hospital on the petition, really the only thing that we are allowed to know is if the person is getting admitted and that's about it. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they're going to be staying at the hospital. Um, I wanted to touch on some of the things that they talked about. It kind of, when you get that 911 call and we're starting to notice like, "Hmm, well, one person saying one thing and one person saying the other thing. We have this conflicting statements. I almost, I always try to explain people, um, explain to people that it's just no different than when we were investigating a crime. Um, we're not going to take somebody to jail based off of, let's say, somebody reported that I just got hit by that person, and that person says I never hit them. Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing more to substantiate those claims, we will document it, but we're not going to, we're not going to act on that if it's just those two things. So I'm not going to take somebody's rights away. Just because one person said that they did something, and now they're telling me no, uh, we need more. And as as police officers, we are looking for more. We're investigating, asking those questions, and trying to trying to see are we meeting that criteria because we take that very seriously. And like you said, it is a civil proceeding. But if you yeah. lie about it, now it becomes That's criminal, criminal. Right. Yeah. And we will act on that.
0: The specific criteria of the person poses a danger to themselves or others
3: are you able to make that determination if you're when you yes. Respond? So we're looking for. A, Ideal, and I wouldn't say ideally, but what we're looking for is homicidal, suicidal, or unable to care for themselves. Okay. So the, the language is risk to sell for to, uh, themselves or others. Yeah. Um, and so we're really looking for those specifics of homicidal or suicidal um, because there are a, a lot of gray when it comes to harm to sell for others. You might have somebody who's cutting um, and, you know, cutting themselves and not necessarily to kill themselves, but because that, the, you know, the, be able to describe it. it's better the than me thanks <laughs> yes yeah. but um they may not necessarily although it's concerning and alarming behavior uh that in itself may not be something that we would take somebody by force to the hospital mm-hmm. um and i think that you guys may say that you wouldn't keep somebody on that as well exactly
4: you know and then that's again where that assessment kind of comes in where if it is somebody that comes in and they've cut themselves you know i ask what were you trying to do you know, and, and that differentiation, I just, you know, I, I I wanted to have a suicide attempt versus I I was just cutting myself for, there are various reasons that people might cut themselves. Um, we really do look at that. And sometimes those are patients that we can say, you know, hey, we can help you. Do you want to come into the hospital? Those, those are one of our, you know, categories of voluntary patients that, you know, they come in, they could use help. Um, if they want to come in, okay, but I might not be at a place where I can say I can't force this person to come in because they aren't a
3: risk of serious harm to themselves. Interesting. As police, we're always trying to get people to go voluntarily. We, Anytime we come in an interaction where somebody uh, may be in need of additional support with additional resources, um, and maybe the emergency room is the right place, we want to try to get that person to go voluntarily. If they meet the criteria for a petition, even if they're volunteer, we still do it just in case there's a change of heart um, at the emergency room. But we're always trying to get somebody to go based on their own
0: decisions. Um, Allison, uh, asks or says, thank y'all. This has been very informative and comprehensive. I'm hoping I can access the video to share with my fellow MHPs at AID. Yes, you can. This video will remain here on the Facebook page uh, and be shared to the States Attorney's page as well afterwards. So, uh, I guess it will be. Um, now, uh, and actually, Judy Bland, so glad to hear the process of involuntary commitment has been improved. Thank you for the valuable information. Appreciate all that you do. Well, thank you very much, Judy.
1: That's the same Judy Bland who used to work here years and years ago.
0: Hello, Judy. Oh, hey, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> Checking in, saying hi to the fellow co workers. Um, question Is there an option for a person to tour the inpatient setting? I struggle with clients to go voluntarily because they have this idea of what a quote psych ward looks like close quote
4: generally we we don't allow for patient privacy reasons um, it it would not be something that we could you know tour because there are actual patients in those psychiatric units Depending on the hospital, depending on the facility, they may have um, pictures or videos or things like that. And I would just recommend reaching out and asking. Um, you know, if you're if you're considering, uh, if, if there's a hospital that you refer to frequently, um, seeing you, know, do you have some pictures of a room, for example? or pictures of uh, the the day area or the activities area that you could share, Um, and those might be something that a hospital could potentially provide because you can get that individual picture without any patient information in it.
0: Yes, it is a very restricted um, and uh, controlled environment. hate to use that term, Um, but in our pre-conversation we spoke, uh, I worked at at Edward Hospital for a large number of years. And besides rudimentary deliveries with which to take supplies to Linden Oaks, there was no access. You cannot, you know, so, and that's appreciated for families. Uh, Two questions, two more questions before we get out of here though. Um, So for the individual or family member who may be noticing decompensating or other symptoms, what should they do?
3: Document. Okay. For for us, on my end, especially when you call 911 to ask for assistance, having documentation is huge because, although maybe it's not something that we've witnessed um, as the police, because petitions cannot be completed on hearsay, That's I think that's also important for people to know is that we, as law enforcement, when we go, we have to observe the behavior. So something is happening over time, especially when it comes to deterioration. And generally, it's either the family or a mental health professional that is noticing the deterioration. It's not generally law enforcement. And when you have that documentation to show the deterioration for somebody, it's helpful for, for us to say, okay, wow, this is a lot versus calling just the day that has kind of built to the point where I think we need to go. And now we don't, we're not there, you know, all the other days that you've observed this behavior. Um, it's nice to know a little bit more. And, uh, and that also helps with us. Maybe law enforcement at that time can't send that person to the hospital, but maybe now we're looking at working with the courts and getting a court order. Uh, because that is also an avenue that we explore with getting a court order for petitions. Okay. Documentation
4: okay. helps documentation helps the doctors too. Because right. you know, having more information of what's happening is gonna be able to help us determine what's going on and how can we best treat patient history. Um, patient history. Exactly. That's, that's like literally med school one oh one right there. Um as far as hey,
0: you know what? <laughs> There you go, there you go. Like he does a podcast <laughs> and he's a doctor. There we go. <laughs> um,
4: you know, and I'll I'll add in addition to the documentation. Um, you know, if it's not you know an emergency situation, calling the doctor. Um, you know, especially if somebody has a doctor calling and saying, "Hey, this is my concern." Um, you know, if somebody's been in treatment. That outpatient provider might be able to help guide what might be a good. Um, course of action um, to prevent it needing to escalate to the point of having to call um, police or or you know go into the emergency room. Having um,
1: information real yes, quick about yes. this, um, like medication that they're on, last doctor's appointment, who the doctor is, any other diagnosis is huge. So most of the time, if this is a family member, these are things that you know. So you know where their pill bottle is. You know, even snapping a picture of that and being able to provide it to the police or to the hospital is big because part of what they're looking at is, was their prior diagnosis? Okay, it says that they got this on June 1st for their prescription and it's supposed to be a 30-day prescription and there are 30 pills in there and it's now June 15th. Right. Like that's huge for them. So any information like that to provide means that they're not trying to go back and recreate everything.
0: Got it. Um, how can, well um, so actually, Gianna Nicole had a question. What happens if someone wants to file a petition or a family member, friend, et cetera, but that person is absolutely opposed to going to the hospital and will not cooperate or physically go voluntarily? I think we slightly addressed sort of. that. So
1: a petition can be filled out and filed with the court. If the court grants it, then that person will have an order for them to be taken to the hospital. That's where we have both paramedic involvement and police involvement. Okay. So there is an avenue to do that. So what we've kind of talked about now is the situation where, you know, they're taken to the hospital for some reason or the police are there and take them to the hospital. Mm -hmm. We've had situations where we, you know, a person just refuses. They're barricading themselves inside of a house. There's no way to get in there. So what can we do? Again, it's contacting our office. What we do is we sit with people. We help them draft the petition. We talk to them about it. Then it goes before a judge, and a judge makes that determination as to whether or not an order to seize the person will be granted.
0: Okay, John and Nicole, I hope that answered your um, specific question. That's a good question. Um, good. Time is eight fifty, or excuse me, six fifty-six. <laughs> uh, morning time. Morning time. Morning time. Um, so how can we the listeners help help you
3: help you all how can, how can myself and the listeners help you guys i think that from the law enforcement side is um, if you see uh, or you're concerned about something if somebody makes a statement that you're like uh, I'm, I'm kind of worried about that i'm worried about what they said say something to somebody um, and whether that's reading out, reaching out to a physician or calling 911, calling our non-emergency line. You can call our unit directly. However it is, is that it's, if there's something that somebody says that is concerning, again, that they might pose a risk of harm to themselves or others, um, we want to know. Because it's important that we act on it. Because if, you're, if we don't act, that's when we're seeing that something bad happens. Mm-hmm. And we don't want that to happen, we want to be, this is a preventative measure, that's what this is for, so that we can get somebody help if they need it. Right.
1: Uh, for our office, the biggest thing is funding. We need funding, and I say that in every single one of these that we have. Again, the reason why Samim and Kim are here is because I got the funding to hire two new assistant state attorneys. So call up your local K County board member and thank them for giving us this. There are often times that we see in the office that there's upward trends. When I came into the office, our domestics skyrocketed, our DUIs, our child abuse cases, the mental health cases. Those are all ones that I petitioned the board and our office has grown as a result of this need. Always be supportive and look at the funding purposes because public safety is paramount. If we don't have enough police officers to deal with this, we're gonna see crime go up. If we don't have social workers to work with police officers, we're gonna see this. If we don't have prosecutors here to handle these cases we're going to see that happen if we don't have doctors and nurses and hospital beds and space for people to go we're just going to see crime continue to
0: grow uh alfredo padilla had a question can a can a person make a petition online or does it have to be in person it can be online through e-file is that
2: Yes, Correct. you could you could uh, e-file your petition and but then when we go to a hearing if they're the ones who have the facts then we're going to need them to testify to the facts that right. are in the petition. But yes, they could e-file it through the clerk's system.
0: Okay. Uh, and the form can be found online. Yes, sir. You can Google the form. I didn't know that when this interview started, ladies and gentlemen. I had no idea to you
2: could just it Google You Google, Google it. anything. Yeah. My dad says, Google
0: yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so the time is 6.59 p.m. Uh, I think this was a very fruitful and great discussion. We really smoked out a lot of the myths associated with um, involuntary admission and um, uh, outpatient or uh, scratch yeah. it up. Let me just read it. Involuntary uh admission and involuntary administration, excuse me, court-ordered medications. Um, did we forget anything? Were there any last words before we go to the
1: positive note?
0: Okay, yeah. Show ends on a positive note. What is the message today? Um, from all of
3: you. Well, I, I would say that I think as a law enforcement community, working with our state's attorney, uh working just in general with everybody that we possibly can, mental health. Um, is a growing concern in our communities. I think that a lot of people are recognizing that and I think that we need to put more effort into trying to have additional resources in the community and that if people are more willing and susceptible to, to recognize that, then that we will see people who need help getting help. And so that's that's what I would like to end with.
2: I'll skip that now, last You go ahead. We just want people to be kind, be aware, and know that we're here. We're here to help them in, any way we can if we can help we will point you to the direction and say go talk to this person so but we're we're here basically we're here to serve the people of Kane county and thank you for that allowing us to have that opportunity absolutely from my perspective um you know the biggest
4: biggest joy of my profession is seeing someone make the transition um from being acutely mentally ill to being able to leave the hospital. Um, and so it, it, it gets better. Um, and anybody that is currently suffering with any um, mental illness or has a family member that's suffering with mental illness, it gets better. And you have resources and we are here for you.
1: Uh, mine is that I truly believe that I have the world's best job. There is nothing better. I spent uh, all of yesterday down at Springfield talking to uh, our reps and our senators and seeing the process and advocating for and against certain bills, but also asking for money for Kane County because apparently that's all that I do is I ask for money. Um, But I came back here just loving what it is that we've done over these last two and a half years and the partnerships that I've been able to make and um, how we're taking a different tactic, especially in law enforcement. In law enforcement, we were kind of raised to, you know, a person commits a crime, they're going to jail or prison. It was punishment, punishment, punishment. And you've heard me say this over and over again. That's not the philosophy here at the state's attorney's office. Um, we know that there are some people who are so bad and unsafe that we have to put them behind bars. And we will do that. And I have some of the best attorneys throughout the, I would say, the United States here in this office. But we also know there's so many people who become criminally justice-involved because of mental health issues or substance use or lack of resources. We get to advocate to have great people like Samim come to this office so that we can truly help people get out of this. The great partnership we have with Aurora where we're looking at a person and not just the sum of what it is that they did that particular day. So for my purposes, I hope everybody learned what this process was. They saw that there's a resource here in law enforcement, in the state's attorney's office, in our hospitals. And they walked away knowing that we are doing the very best we possibly can in King County to make sure that people have every opportunity in life. And I will continue to do that as your state's attorney.
0: Well said, well said. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this was our uh, monthly Um, Kane County Community Forum and Discussion uh, with our great partners. Once again, um, Assistant State's Attorney uh, Ms. Munshi, Dr. Jennifer Adams, MD, Elgin Mental Health Center, Kane County State's Attorney Jamie Moster, and Investigator David Guevara of the Aurora Police Department. Um, So glad to be doing this with you guys every single month. Thank you for everyone uh, who had um, great. Uh, questions this evening. Uh, this interview will stay on the Facebook page. It is here. It will also be added to Spotify and YouTube as well. Be blessed. Have a good evening, and take care of yourself and each other. Thank you. Thank you, sir.